I'm going to I'm going to do a little bit of um, a little bit of review. There's there's always been a, one quote or two that's uh, been kind of gotten left off of a conversation the week I intended and haven't quite gotten around to it. So actually, I'm going to go back to a passage that was in a handout that had three quotations from Ari Schulman's GPS in the End of the Road. And I think that we spent a little bit of time talking about that last week. And so this is, in some respects, just um, just by way of review. But it was the last quote that I, I don't know that we really uh, got to and, and spent a lot of time discussing. Um, we, we ended up talking a good deal about the the way that we inhabit a place in terms of the attention that we give it and also how we how we position ourselves with regards to a place whether we tend to see it simply as uh, space for the fulfillment of our own projects uh, space to be mastered on behalf of our own desires uh, or whether we respected it and granted a certain integrity of its own and received it, I, I suggested, more in, in the manner of a gift, uh, something that is given to us, uh, something that, again, has its own integrity. It is good on its own terms and because uh, its creator, God the creator, has declared it good uh, and also because it is good for the sake of God and not only for our sake. And so it, it got us a little bit into that uh, sort of moral and theological discussion of, of how we position ourselves in terms of our experience of place internally. And uh, we got a little bit away from this very specific question of, uh, of GPS, interestingly enough. And I had wanted to talk a little bit about it because I thought uh, in this essay, Ari did a wonderful job of weaving together literature and philosophy uh, and a discussion of uh, contemporary technology to give us a really rich, um, a really rich essay that's very rewarding. Um, but I, and I was especially interested, maybe not especially, but I, I was interested in using this piece as a way of sort of understanding uh, how technology interfaces, is, is the interface for us with regards to place, how it often is, is what mediates place to us in a variety of different ways. Um, you know, a while ago, now it seems like ancient history, but I remember there was a time where it was kind of popular to um, uh, look at these videos of people who, staring on their phones, fell into a fountain or fell into a ditch. You know, there was a lot of um, a lot of that going around a while back, um, and and that, of course, um, you know, it it's problematic on a number of um, levels, um, but it certainly attested to the fact that sometimes our involvement in a screen can distract us from um, the the places that we are around. Um, there are a variety of ways in which our devices kind of uh, distract us or point our attention away from place, the place that we're inhabiting. Um, but even something like GPS, which is uh, designed to sort of give us a sense of place, right, or at least give us a sense of, of location, of location awareness, can sometimes have a similar uh, effect. And so let me read this last paragraph from Ari, and then we'll, we'll move on to um, some new material for, for this week. He writes, it is tempting to believe that the trouble is simply that our digital technology has until recently been itself blind to place, and that consequently GPS and location awareness offer a way to reconnect us with places. But this hope uh, is belied by that peculiar habit of the user of GPS location awareness technology. He checks first with the devices to find out where he is, and only second with the place in front of him 
to find out what here is. Now, I thought that was a, a, a well-put um, distinction, right? The distinction between, on the one hand, checking to find out where we are through a device, and on the other, simply looking around to find out what here happens to be. And so he goes on and he says, consider the example of a hiker who is guided by GPS and a location awareness app and who enters a valley where his device has no reception. Will he suddenly feel alienated as if his connection to the place has been lost? Or is it likelier that he will feel a nervousness that is actually a quizzical sense of excitement, the excitement of unknown risk and adventure, experiences that can be found now only at the fringes? Suddenly he is faced with thrilling anxieties and possibilities of being in place. Location awareness, especially when it becomes augmented reality, enshrines the individual, <coughs> excuse me, enshrines the individual in a shell of fancy where he may distract himself from these anxieties, where he is free from them, but at the cost of what he is free for, of the freedom given to him as an earthly being to inhabit the world and as a human being to forge his path through it. Uh, so again, it's a, that's an artful paragraph, Aries is a good writer, um, but this, this manner that we have of relying, of outsourcing uh, a kind of interior or internal sense of place to a device that we can check to allow us to know where we are in place. So I think that's, that's, that's important, and you know, I talked to, um, GPS is kind of a recurring example that I use because it's very easy to relate to, all of us have some experience with it, uh, and so it makes for a good example when you're talking to a crowd. And, um, and I, I often get people who tell me, yeah, I've, I've lived here for X number of years, and if I didn't have my phone, I'd have no idea how to get around, right? I'd be totally lost. <laughs> Um, and um, I, I mean, very recently in connection with this class, I've had people tell me that. And so um, what's the reason for that, right? Uh, in part, the reason for that is that what we have unbeknownst, uh, un unknowingly done, maybe knowingly, is outsourced our wayfinding, right? Outsourced the kind of attention that would be required of us to actually navigate ourselves in place. And we've sort of outsourced that to a device that, that dictates to us what to do, right? Uh, you know, in 500 feet, turn left, rather than being ourselves aware of our surroundings and navigating according to our senses, as it were. Um, and that, I think, has this effect of always deferring the knowledge we may gain of a place, the knowledge we may gain of how to make our way in a place. Um, and there is a risk there, of course, right? There's this, uh, you know, none of us want to necessarily be lost in the, in the middle of the woods with no sense of where to go from, uh, from there. Uh, but in a city even, right, the risk is uh, that we may be late to our appointment, that we may miss something important, um, that, you know, sometimes we carry this risk that we'll navigate into parts of town we'd rather not be in. Um, you know, that, of course, has other dimensions wrapped up into it as well. Um, but there is a, a certain risk in the willingness to maybe find ourselves lost. Um, and it's not like I'm suggesting that we should always put ourselves in that position. Uh, but there is a, a kind of cost, I think, that has come from our reliance on GPS in order to help us make our way. And I'll mention too, that these costs often have um, multiple dimensions to them, right? And so one um, consequence of this, you know, so if I had in the old days, right, before GPS, if I had asked somebody for directions and they, they give me a set of, of directions and always, you know, it, it would vary whether it was, you know, turn on this street, turn on that road, or, you know, 
at that at that green you know maple tree make a left you know always different kinds of directions one gets but if I had somehow gone that route and found out that somehow the directions had misled me or that I had maybe misread directions and now I, I honestly was not quite sure where to go what what would I do right what what recourse was available to me and ordinarily it's simply to stop somewhere and ask a person right and so there's this interesting uh, way in which in, in not maybe what seems like a, not, not a hugely important way but in which we have also um, cut off certain kinds of contacts with people uh, as a result of this as well right and so this is just one of the ways in which in outsourcing something to a, to a device what we're outsourcing is often an internal sense or a individual capability and on the other hand sometimes a social dynamic right some interhuman or interpersonal dynamic uh, that is now kind of gone by the wayside and so in in one discrete case right so if in one journey to one place where you happen to get lost and you rely on GPS the world doesn't change but when that becomes the normal pattern and these other ways of knowing a place and finding our way in it are perpetually sort of taken away from our experience and I think the, the cumulative effects over time are not insignificant. So I wanted to get back to that paragraph from Ari and have that little bit of a conversation about it. Um, of course right now it's just my monologue but I'm, I'm happy to hear your thoughts about it in a moment. Because I, I thought it was, it was good to think about something very concrete and specific uh, like, like our use of GPS. What are your, any, any thoughts on that? I mean, what, what are your reactions to that little bit there? My, my first thought is, it's like, I just, I mean, I don't, I don't feel like any of us necessarily enjoy being lost or not having knowledge that we could have. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm ever in a situation where I don't know, it's like, well, of course, I'm just going to try and figure out this knowledge so that I can feel more at ease and more comfortable. Um, I don't know. It's like, you know, conventional wisdom will tell you, oh, yeah, you got to do that. You, know, you need to know where you are. It's like, I think how often, like trying to think of the last time I've not really actually known where I am. I can't, I can't remember a time like yeah. that because I've but since I've been like exploring and biking, I've always had a smartphone yeah. in my pocket. Yeah. Um, right. So, uh, also, it's kind of a secondary thing, but like how, how much easier it is to be kind of, I don't know, maybe this isn't the right way to turn, but like there's a sort of pride that can come when you have so much knowledge, or at least the ability to have the knowledge. And so it's like, we don't have to, I don't have to worry about that. Like, my limits are not constrained to what I can see anymore. Right. Like, I know I can go anywhere. Yeah. And know where I am. Right, right. And, and you think that that's a, um, a positive, complicated, or negative development? Or how do you, how do you read that? It's clearly positives, but it seems that there are more negatives that are kind of under the surface that yeah. we're trying to piece out, yeah. pick out. I mean, what you've described is, um, you know, the dynamic that I usually refer to by the word outsourcing, right? Where, where we outsource some skill, some capacity um, to, a, to something external to us. Um, so, you know, 
when I was a kid, I, I, I literally still remember my grandmother's uh, phone number uh, from you know a, a house that I haven't been to in 30 years. Um, because as a kid, you know, if you want, you, you needed to know numbers, right? You you didn't carry around uh, you know this directory of of, um, of numbers with you, and so if you um, needed to make a call from school, say, or, or if you were out with friends or whatever, you, you needed that number in your head. Um, and so now, of course, nobody, I mean, we barely know our own numbers. Um, and um, the reason for that is that we've outsourced that, right? Well, the phone can remember it for me, et cetera, right? We, we do this with Google. There's this whole um, kind of discourse around learning facts or memorizing things. Well, why should I memorize it if I can just always, go, you know, if I can Google, it's always just, uh, you know, a, a few clicks away, this information. And I think there is, there is a genuine difference in having access to information and having, or information or knowledge or, or, um, um, or even a skill, and on the other hand, having internalized that skill, that knowledge, that information. Um, in, a, in a Christian context, you know, it's the difference between uh, knowing that you can look up a passage on your Bible app at any moment and actually having internalized scripture through the process of memorization, right? Which is how we might say that we, uh, you know, Paul's words, let the words of Christ dwell richly in us. There is a substantial difference uh, between those two things, right? One of them is there in your mind already kind of marinating your thoughts and your experience, even if not quite always consciously. Uh, and the other is always sort of at a distance, right? It's not literally a part of you, right? You haven't um, you know, in, in these old phrases we use for memorization, right? We haven't taken it to heart. Uh, we haven't learned it by heart. Um, and so that its impact on us, I think, is mitigated by the fact that we've kept it at this, at this remove. Now, obviously, um, you know, for people in a religious tradition, uh, dealing with the internalization of, of sacred texts is, is quite important, right? It's very important. Memorizing your, your phone numbers obviously is, is much less important than that, but it's the same sort of dynamic. And, and there is a kind of satisfaction, I think, you know, you use the word pride. Um, and, and I think there is uh, nonetheless a kind of satisfaction from, from having these, retaining some measure of these skills and knowledge and information. Um, I, you know, you mentioned not knowing the last time you didn't know where you were. Um, I, I was trying to think if I could, and I, I do actually remember my um, wife's uh, uncle and aunt uh, live in um, a kind of rural area in, in western PA, and it's kind of it's beautiful. It's um, it's very near the site of um, uh, George Washington's engagement with the um, English, uh, with the French army during the French Indian Wars, and and it has these uh, several trails you can kind of get on. Um, and um, a few years ago, I I had some time to myself while I was there, and, and I got on that trail and kind of started going and, and after long you're in the forest there are no markers telling you where to go i didn't have a smartphone the you know you, you you've walked for maybe an hour and i had the sense of where where is this going to lead how am i going to get out of here there were a couple i have kind of ventured through what looked like the remainder of a trail but there was another path and and i did have that momentary feeling of ooh. Um, you know, what time of day is it? How long have I been out here? Do I have water? You know, um, and, and yet then to kind of find one's way through that and then come to the end of it, uh, yeah, there's a little bit like, wow, all right, I did that. That's good. I mean, it's very minimal, right? I'm, you know, for, for a city dweller, it's very, uh, you know, very basic sort of thing. 
but there is uh, there was something I you know I resonated in Aries uh, with Aries paragraph there where he talks about kind of suddenly being disconnected. I mean, I was disconnected to begin with, but um, the sense is that there's a little bit of risk involved, um, and we tend to eliminate that risk wherever possible in favor of security and safety and control. I think that control word is the big one. We always like to be in control of a situation. We get very anxious when we are not, you know, when, when something threatens our, our control. You know, part of the reason why we don't like talking on the phone with people, we prefer to text, is because we feel like we have tech control over our conversation if we can text and, and not so much if we're on the phone. So that, that all, I think, is a, an important part of this, right? Um, and again, I feel like I've just sort of dissected various dimensions, sort of psychological dimensions of this um, kind of experience, but, but it's good talking, talking through these things. I, I can relate to that, perhaps at my age, but uh, before there was GPS and before I had discovered TopoMaps, I would often find myself in a wild place and I wasn't really sure where I was. And nothing sharpens your senses more than trying to figure out where you are and maybe get some clues. I should know where I am in this place. I've probably been here or nearby. Right. So you, you, you learn the place with a, a, a little more resolve as you try to find your way out. And, and there's, a, there's a thrill in that um, and a satisfaction in being able to, to uh, find your way. Wh wh which way is the sun? Uh, where would a, a trail likely be if this topography is, mm -hmm. is rough? And, and uh, eventually you begin to read the, the, yeah. the terrain and the ecosystem in a way that you wouldn't if you just rely on a map or right. a, uh, a GPS device. Right, right. Tim, yeah, that, and that's fascinating because I, I, I have myself become kind of fascinated, and I think towards the tail end of this class, we're already in the tail end of it, but maybe in the last couple of weeks, I wanted to talk a little bit about wayfinding. Um, and, and I'm fascinated by these traditional cultures, for example, that have these highly sophisticated uh, modes of navigation. Um, South, South Pacific Islanders who navigated you know, with, without very um, sophisticated tools at all uh, over you know thousands of square miles of ocean, or Inuits who in in frozen tundra with very little land uh, you know sort of signals from a from a carpeted snow carpeted landscape are able to nonetheless kind of find their way. Um, yeah, there's something really. It, it goes back to this question of alienation from the place, right? Um, we we have lost those uh, that that attention to place that was necessary to make our way in a place also in a sense I think attached us to that place um, it grounded us in it in some way and so having no longer needing to pay that kind of attention to um, these natural features of a landscape we uh, I think feel alienated from that landscape also um, and I think that there's there's a bit of a cost that comes uh, as well I, again a, a lot of these things are very I feel like probably really subtle, um, but it's the sort of thing where I think we feel them. They they are a part of our experience of, of alienation, uh, our sense of sort of not belonging, being out of sync. Uh, similar things happen in terms of time. Um, you know, as I you know argued in another class, um, but it happens as well with regards to place. I think right the sense of not really knowing our place, uh, only ever being able to. Uh, you know, kind of lo locate ourselves through a device and then severing that, that kind of experiential experience of a place. Well, ultimately, I think that that psychologically has consequences that are um, 
that are, again, not insignificant. I don't know how to quantify them, um, but I think that there, there's something there to, to consider. Does that make sense? I'll, I'll relate at this point. I'm not sure where I would have fit this in otherwise, but I'll, I'll just throw this little personal anecdote in at this moment. Um, so, and I'll try to make it really short, but uh, a few years ago I had a beagle who was very old and um, she had um, late in her life a disease. I can't remember the name of it, now, Cushing's disease. Uh, and one unfortunate consequence of it was that she, she had to go to the bathroom all the time uh, and even through the night, right? So for uh, over a year, I was getting up two or three times. This is before I had an infant, mind you. I was getting up two or three times a night out of bed to take the dog out, walk the dog, come back in. And so I, I didn't get a full night of sleep for, two, for about a year um, with several kind of waking up in the middle of the night. But what I would do, you know, I'd walk her out and I'd kind of gaze up. I mean, this is a suburban landscape, so it wasn't like a full, um, you know, array of stars. But, but I would gaze up, note the moon. Um, I, I've always been kind of uh, interested in astronomy, so kind of note the constellations, note the planets making their way across it. And then I did this every night for a year, uh, to the degree that in, in the middle of the day, I had a sense of where the moon was, right? Where a certain constellation would be. And I, it was a very bizarre thing. I, I wrote about it a, few, a couple of years ago. Uh, I, even though I had every reason to be sort of physically wrecked by this regimen, I felt really good uh, in a weird way throughout that span of time. Um, and I, I can only describe it in sort of vague, hippie-sounding language, like feeling centered or feeling anchored or, you know, feeling uh, some kind of, I don't know if peace is not quite the right word. But it, it was, I attributed it after thinking about that to this weird way in which I was sort of attuned to my environment um, and had even noted sort of subtle changes in, in the trees over the course of the, the, you know, changing seasons in Central Florida, which is not much, but it's something, right? And so you, you, you attend to that. And um, I wouldn't recommend getting up every night two or three times to gaze at the sky. Obviously, I was glad to be able to sleep later. But, um, but that sense of, of attentiveness to the environment, its changes, to be able to sort of know yourself in relation to something other than your own psyche, as it were, Hey, there you are, David. Okay, good. All right, so, yeah, good. I don't know. I, again, I'm not sure how to account for that, how to quantify it. I don't want to make anything, uh, make that sound like something normative or prescriptive, uh, but it is uh, anecdotal evidence of something, I, I think is you know, what I'm comfortable saying at this point. So does that make sense? Does that sound crazy? What are your thoughts on any, any of that? And then we can kind of move on to this question of memory with uh, the time we have left today. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense actually. I can also speak from experience in that regard. Not as in like walking outside and knowing, like looking at the stars all the time, but it does have to do actually with, sorry, not as intense as what you had mm -hmm. to go through. Um, one time I, gosh, I took a trip to uh, Cambridge University. It was mm -hmm. a two week summer program. It's a beautiful and city. Love Cambridge. Yeah, yeah. I was I was really nervous to go because yeah. this was my first time going overseas. Mm -hmm. No one in my family had been uh, anywhere else except mm -hmm. for Niagara Falls. I'm mean, outside the U.S. <laughs> I mean New York, you know. Right. But then something my dad told me to comfort me. He said, "When you're there, what might help is look at the plant life and look at the wildlife or the plants and animals and see." 
how are they different? And so I started paying attention when I got there to, oh, these are how the trees are. This is how the animals are and the grass. Mm-hmm. And it, it was actually really comforting because I could see, oh, there's what I experienced. And like where I'm from, there are all these maple trees and pine trees. But here the trees, their leaves are um, more compound is what we call them, or botanists call them. So that means that there are a lot of smaller leaves. Mm. Um, and the animals are, a lot of the grass was yellow at that time just out in the fields and I didn't really know why but it was uh, the animals like there was this weird looking duck that had this it, I expect a duck to have webbed feet like this but this duck it had separated digits but then there were the webbing was still on the outside and it was like a tiny fin hmm. for each finger so I noticed things like that mm-hmm. and I paid attention to the landscape and yeah. it gave me a sense of where I was yeah. and um, what this land is like yeah. Um, I remember one night I, I walked outside. I've always had the sense of like wherever I go, there the Lord is with me because He's everywhere. And I walked outside and I, I looked, stared at the moon and I, I found the North Star and I was like, oh, that's the same where I am. Yeah. Like, it's the same star and right. there's the it's the same moon. Yes, yeah. People like maybe they can't see it right now, but when it gets over there, then they're gonna see it back home in New York yeah. too. And so. I, I've always had this sense of like, when I go to these places, get a feeling for what the land is mm-hmm. like, and remember the Lord is there too. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. No. Good. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, the uh, you know reading through Dante in the pur- in Purgatorio, he is constantly referencing the position of the stars and the constellations uh, and the sun in relation to those uh, as a way of marking time, for example. And, and it's just, but it's that constant awareness of, of our environment, of our larger environment, right? Uh, you know, it, it's just really a question of what is, it, what is the natural habitat of the human animal, right, is, is one way of putting this. And maybe that's a kind of uh, reductionistic way of putting it, because I, I wouldn't suggest that we always just think of ourselves as mere animals um, in the sense that we think of other um, members of an ecosystem, but nonetheless, we are embodied creatures made for this world in a unique way. Uh, we have an ability to, to live, of course, in all manner of e- ecosystems, but nonetheless, right, this world is the world for which we were made, right? And, I, and so there's a sense in which we have isolated, we've ensconced ourselves uh, within a human-built world. Um, and, and, that, and building a human-built world isn't the problem, per se, but I think it is a, the manner in which it has been built so as to alienate us from uh, our what we might think of as our natural habitat and its and its own rhythms and its own pace and its own um, you know dynamics that you've identified David with regards to flora and fauna um, and, and that comes I think that that has to come at a cost I think is the um, you know my, my final um, sort of analysis of that uh, we, we cannot just sever ourselves from the world that we have made to inhabit and expect that that's going to be totally inconsequential and that we're going to thrive, right? That we're going to thrive without any regard for um, the natural rhythms of, of the rising sun and setting sun, uh, for the natural rhythms of, um, of the natural ecosystem around us, uh, without any regard for, um, you know, a, con- a, a genuine connection with the place. Um, you know, I just, in my newsletter, passed along um, a study that, that uh, Made, drew a, a genuine uh, connection 
um, sort of grounded this hypothesis that a lot of um, contemporary and the prominence of contemporary allergies, especially in children, um, might have been related to the degree in which they live in sort of hypersterile environments. Um, and so it, it had to do with kind of replacing playground floor with um, sort of uh, elements of a of local forest that was taken and brought in, and then they created a control group, blah, blah, blah. But, but it, is, it seemed to establish that there was a, a, an immune system response um, amongst those that had a more direct and even earthy sort of connection to uh, the, the world itself, as it were, right? That they weren't ensconced in this sort of hyper-sterile environment. Um, and so these are, I think, some of the things that we're sort of discovering uh, in different pockets of our culture and in different ways. Um, and, uh, and I think, good, I'm glad that we are. And, and, and it, it, our relationship to place, I think, is, is um, a function of this, right? We've isolated ourselves from it. Uh, from our place, whatever that place may be, uh, in ways that probably are not good for us as human beings, right, as the sorts of creatures we are. And again, I'm tempted to ask, okay. does that make sense or is that, yeah, what are your, any thoughts on that? Mike? No, yeah. I was just going to ask, if I haven't actually read Wimbleberry, but isn't that like part of his main thesis about like we're all kind of too far away from nature essentially? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think that, that uh, Wendell Berry um, writes along these lines, right? That they're the, the membership, in fact, I'm going to have a little Wendell Berry for us here in the next couple of weeks, but yeah, that, that membership in a community involves not just sort of the human members of that community, uh, but the non-human members as well, right? That there's, um, a, and, he, and this is in an essay in which he talks about health, right? That, that health in its fullest sense cannot simply be understood as, uh, as human well-being, but as the health of a, of a wider community that includes non-human elements as well. Um, and so, yeah, I think that there is certainly this strand in, in Barry's thought as well, yeah. So, interestingly on that note, that is actually, uh, I wouldn't call an active area of research in, as a biologist. It wouldn't be an active area of research, but that is an area where researchers are paying attention now. Um, so, particularly those who study what we call the microflora of the body. Hmm. So, so, maybe you're familiar with this idea that there are good bacteria and bad bacteria yeah. in the body. It's not exactly how it works. Like, yes, sure, we can call it that. But what we really mean is that each person is basically their own ecosystem, mm -hmm. where there are tons of bacteria. Actually, I, if I remember correctly, most of us, in terms of weight, is actually bacteria. Hmm. <laughs> the human. And all these different yeah. microorganisms that are a part of um, what we are to the point where there's I think this one's actually active um, an area of research of um, it's, I don't know what it would be called but maybe microbial um, forensics where each person has their own sort of microbiome mm -hmm. and they you can they're trying to track people now based on their microbiome yeah um, interesting it's even like, there was one study I remember, I took a bioinformatics class, and the researchers were looking at like the family members coming to hotel rooms and what the how the microbes changed in their diversity and their types, um, before what they were like before the family came, while the family was there, and then after the family left. And basically, each family populates um, a place with their own microbes. 
Mm -hmm. um, even across individuals, like when you and another individual be each other, you have your own microbes, and the more time you spend together, you end up sharing those microbes, and your microbiomes become very similar. Interesting. Um, so yeah, yeah, there very yeah. much is that sort yeah. of connection with like the world around us, um, even to the point where some scientists, and I'm inclined to agree, so this is more of an opinion right now, I would say, not necessarily hard research. Um, would say that one of the reasons we have so many um, health problems that are unusual is because we got rid of all of our parasites. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> so, that yeah. would be more of an opinion right yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. It's at right. least an idea that some biologists have. Right, and it, it's, um, you know, the underlying dynamic seems to be, I mean, maybe a hubris is too strong a word, right? But but that we assume that things would only be good if we actively made them good, right? If we inserted ourselves into that process. And there's some there's a, a term called Chesterton's fence, I think it's the name of it. And it actually comes from a little paragraph in G.K. Chesterton um, where he talks about, and, and you know, in, in old world places like England, you sort of see this kind of thing where, you know, there's this fence that's sort of been up for generations and generations and generations, and um, and you don't quite know the function it serves or, or, or what, and, but the idea is you don't, you don't tamper with it, because in tampering with it, because you don't know the purpose it serves, you know, you're, you're liable to cause a, you know, a good deal of damage. Um, and, and I've kind of butchered it a little bit, but you get the idea, right, that there's something in place you don't quite understand it, uh, and there's the you know there, it's appropriate to maybe let that thing be rather than say oh well this doesn't look like it's right let me sort of intervene into it um, and 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 make it what I think it ought to be and and not accept the fact that that might have you know detrimental consequences and I think we've done that you know across the whole scale of, of human activity. Let me see here. We have ten minutes to go, uh, just under ten minutes, and. And I'd, I would at least like to get us um, pointed in the direction of talking about place and memory. And then we can sort of go from there next week and, and build on that. Um, so the, the last thing, the last handout I gave you last, for last week's class um, has three quotes related to this relationship between place and memory. Or if you want to think of it this way, just place and time. So the first one... I think I may have alluded to this in one of the classes uh, recently, but um, here's the paragraph. This is um, the physicist Niels Bohr speaking to the other, other well-known 20th century physicist, Werner Heisenberg. Um, and Heisenberg relates this in uh, his memoir, Physics and Beyond Encounters and Conversations. So um, he recalls being together with Bohr, and he, Niels tells him this, Niels Bohr tells him this, isn't it strange how this castle there in Denmark changes as soon as one imagines that Hamlet lived here. As scientists, we believe that a castle consists only of stones and admire the way the architect put them together. The stones, the green roof with its patina, the wood carvings in the church constitute the whole castle. None of this should be changed by the fact that Hamlet lived here, and yet it is changed completely. Suddenly the walls and the ramparts speak a quite different language. The courtyard becomes an entire world. A dark corner reminds us of the darkness of the, in the human soul. We hear Hamlet's to be or not to be. Yet all we really know about Hamlet is that his name appears in a 13th century chronicle. No one can prove that he really lived here. 
let alone that, that he lived, let alone that he lived here. But everyone knows the questions Shakespeare had him ask, the human depth he was made to reveal, and so he too had to be found a place on earth here in Kronberg. And beyond, and one, excuse me, and once we know that, Kronberg becomes a quite different castle for us. So this I, I thought was a really fascinating paragraph, um, not least of uh, which, you know, for, because of who it is speaking, right, and, and the kind of conversation they're having here. Um, but it, it, it signals this idea that what, it, what is real is more than what is physical, right? And so what Niels is describing, what, as if I'm on a first name basis with him, what Bohr is describing, right, <laughs> is that there is something about the, the reality of his experience of this place that cannot simply be reduced to its physicality. And so he's, he's here in his castle, you've never known, you, maybe you don't know the significance of the castle, and somebody suddenly tells you this, and it, 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 I can't imagine being in their place and this being the case, it's it suddenly transformed, right? Um, it's like maybe traveling through, um, well, Western PA, again, in this little area where, where I've you know, become a little bit familiar with over the years, um, there's a, a little inn, and the inn prides itself uh, in the fact that George Washington slept there. And so it, it, it transforms in, right? It goes from being just any old building to having, what, uh, some presence, right? Something there that distinguishes, that, that gives it some layer of depth that it didn't have there because it houses this memory, right? It houses this thing that happened in the past connected with somebody, of course, that you know, we all are uh, to some degree familiar with. Um, and this, let me then kind of segue and leave us with this last um, quote here. This is by Michel de Sorteau in his book, The Practice of Everyday Life. And actually what I've done, this is my summary that I wrote up at some point. I was going to try to put the whole paragraph in here, but it had been too long. So I, this is my summary of, of this section in de Sorteau's book. The context of walking and moving about spaces leads de Sorteau to describe memory as a sort of anti-museum. It is not localizable, right? So anti-museum in the sense that in a museum, every, everything's collected in this place, but memory uh, attaches significance to any place, right? Memory it, it doesn't get located in one location, right? It, it, wherever you look, you might find the memory. So where museums gather pieces and artifacts in one location, our memories have dispersed themselves across the landscape. They colonize. Here a memory by that tree, there a memory in that house, Desserteau is principally developing this notion of a veiled, remembered reality that lies beneath the visible experience of space. We point here and there and say things like, here there used to be a bakery, or that's where old lady Dupois used to live. Only part of what we point to is there physically, but we're pointing as well to the invisible, to what can't be seen by anyone else, which begins to hint at a certain loneliness that attends to memory. Reality is already augmented. It is freighted with our memories. It comes alive with distant echoes and fleeting images. And perhaps it is this invisibility of memory stored away in places that inevitably suggest to Deserteau the haunting metaphor. There is, he says, there is no place that is not haunted by many different spirits hidden there in silence, spirits one can invoke or not. But, he goes on to say, Haunted places are the only ones people can live in. 
And I've always thought that was a very evocative um, line, right? And the haunting, of course, is a sort of haunting of memory. Um, and, but then to say that haunted places are the only ones people can live in suggests that there's something to the depth that memory adds to place that enriches us, uh, our experience of it, uh, that helps us find ourselves at home in places like that. Um, so I think what I'd like to do is leave, let's, let's leave it at that. With, let me let that paragraph kind of percolate with you uh, over the next week, and, and maybe we will begin just there next week with that and, and talk a little bit about that. Um, yeah, and I think that, that's probably the best path at this point. Any, any final thoughts or, or comments or questions for today? I'm enjoying this immensely. Oh, it, good. It, uh, good. It, uh, All right. It's deepened my appreciation of lots of, of places and things. Yeah. Good. I'm glad to hear that, Tim. Thank you. All right. Myself also. I just been started dating someone and it's a long distance relationship. So it's I've been thinking about the whole place thing where it's like, oh, she's over <laughs> in the line of St. Augustine. And kind of know this. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah good, good. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Congratulations, too. Yeah, I've talked a lot today. I'm kind of hesitant to leave it on a, a sad note. But I just think, like I've heard Steve Gray, my pastor, talk about going to Europe and visiting the, I think it's in Auschwitz, where they, mm-hmm. they made the memorial and museum yeah. to the Holocaust. And just think of like how, how surely we know and see that, like, right, they're not going to build this thing in a different place, right? They're going to build it there because that's where the memories lie. Like, yeah. that's where there's so much more meaning in that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Even for like for positive things, but it just seems kind of struck like right, we build memorials and places of tragedies. Yeah. Um, or we build monuments to like celebrate these great things. Right. You see or the two yeah. yeah. Somewhere in this paragraph or in these paragraphs that I've summarized uh, from Deserto, he talks about how you know uh, memories evoke feelings, uh, and he uses the line something like, you know, I, we, we, we end up saying, I feel good here. But, um, you know, the, the example of Auschwitz, I think, reminds us that, that the, the, the feelings evoked are not always pleasant, right? Um, they're, they're dark things as well, that um, they're, they're dark hauntings as well that we can stumble into. Um, and, and, and accounting for the past in that way, I think, is important. Um, because otherwise it acts as a kind of repressed memory and manifests itself in the present in ways we have a difficult time understanding, but it's because we've repressed some sort of important, although tragic element of the past that's still kind of inscribed in the place where, where we are. Um, and I think we'll, yeah, we'll have more occasion to talk about that next week. Yeah. Good. All right, folks, well, good. Um, have a, have a good, good week and then we'll, we'll see you next, um, next Monday. Very good. All right. Thanks. Thanks.